readings to each one of you in Jesus' name. He said, I am the light of the world. Not a light, one of the lights. I am the light. Tonight I am distinctly grateful to have known the light, seen the light, come to the light, and live in the light. It's so much better than being in the darkness. It just is. And uh, just coming into town, I was, I was grateful to know Jesus, which some of it is the teaching of my parents, and some of it is my growth in Christ, that I almost forgot it was Halloween until I came to town. I'm grateful for that. All right, first things first. Let's get the riddle out of the way and another one on your lap. And did you talk about this at school? You can. That's fine. What's, what's, the, what's the answer? What is the one breed of dog found in the Bible? Maybe there's two, but I never found the second one. What's the one? Who knows? If, how many of you have an answer? Besides the adults. Some of the children do. Okay. Somebody tell me. What's the breed of dog? Go ahead. Greyhound. It's a greyhound. Proverbs 30, verse 31 and there is a list of things that are just beautiful to watch them go. Um, all of a sudden, I can't put the exact words together, and I want to do that for you, because this man, as he was writing scriptures, he thought about what an impressive sight there are. There be three things, Proverbs 30, 29, there be three things which go well. Yea, four are commonly in going. A lion which is strongest among beasts, and turneth not away for any. A greyhound, and he goat also, and a king against whom there is no rising up. How many of you have ever seen a greyhound dog? You ever see him run? They're just about right up there with a horse. That's what the Bible's saying. Them dogs are nice to look at when they run. And uh, I thought that interesting. As far as I know, did anybody find a different one that I overlooked? That's the one I, I know. All right, here's your question for tomorrow night. Uh, I asked this one to my family, and some of my children knew it instantly, and others said they never heard of such a thing. What is the name of the idol whose head was cut off, but nobody touched it? What is the name of the idol whose head was cut off, but nobody touched it? See if you can find it. Let's sing a couple verses of our theme song. Your sheets should be in the racks. Why don't we sing verses 1, 3, and 4? We didn't sing those last evening. Go ahead. You may lead us. Come, Holy Spirit,
just sang is the one that really stood out to me on Sunday. If the Spirit withdraws, we fall easy victims to conscience, wrath, and law. That's sobering, and it's true. For your message tonight, turn to Luke chapter 13. I'm sorry I did not give you a title last night. That is one of my faults. I, my wife has worked on that for years, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. I'll just give you my title this evening first. The title of the message is Woman, Thou Art Loosed. And we want to look at this story in Luke 13 from verses 11 to verse 17. It's one of the miracles that Jesus did. Verse 11. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could not in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work, and in them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And Jesus answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman... Being a daughter of Abraham, who Satan had bound, lo, these eighteen years be loosed from this bond on this Sabbath day. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Here's that word again, behold. Um, maybe I can get you to look at it a little different from now on. But it tells a story. Now, this is a story of Jesus. This is a, one of the miracles that he did. And uh, just getting started here, I want to say a couple of things about the Bible, because I, I think that it's good for us, at least from time to time, to think about these realities. The Bible is a storybook, okay? It's more than a storybook, but the Bible is a storybook. There are accounts in here that are not validated with the rest of the world's books. They're not validated by the traditions passed down by the Hebrew tongue, and they're not validated by the uh, fables that come out of other religions. There are some strikingly similar fables to it that have been found, but the Bible stands as its own storybook, and we have Bible storybooks, and they have these stories in them. Now, there are four purposes to the Bible stories. One is to record history. We know that the flood happened because the Bible says so. It's recorded there, and you can, you, can, you can condition your archaeological digs according to the story because the history book says so. The Bible is a history book. It records the creation. It records the flood. It records the Tower of Babel. It records the crossing of the Red Sea. It records the first Passover. It records the Ten Commandments, and it records all the stories of David killing Goliath, hiding in a cave, just to let your mind go, story after story. It's, there it is in the record. And um, has a story of baby Jesus, uh, Mary, angels, shepherds. It's there in the storybook. And they're there to record history. It actually happened because it's officially recorded in the Bible. And that's my faith in the book. It's, I, it's a true story because it's in this book. That's what I'm telling you. Number two, the Bible stories have a purpose to demonstrate and record all the workings of the Almighty toward and among his creation and his people. 
It's more than just recording raw data. And you know that. The Bible is a storybook that says that once upon a time, there was a man and a woman, and there was nobody else in the world, and it was a perfect world. And then a serpent came along and actually talked to the woman, and, and, and he deceived the woman, the book will say later. And, and, and they, they went and took of this fruit of the tree, and they ate it, and in that they sinned. And their eyes were opened, the book says, the story goes, and um, they were afraid, and they ran and hid. And then you know what it says next? It says, and God came in the cool of the day and called out for Adam. See, it's a storybook that explains not just raw history, solid data, but it is a, it is a log of Jehovah connecting to his creation. And, and I still think that right there, that moment is one of the most tender pictures of the whole Bible. When the first man and the first woman sinned, children, have you ever been working with Play-Doh and you push around at it and you shove it and you form it and you get it all smooth and all of a sudden it's marred and the first thing you want to do is take your fist and go bam and just smash it and start all over. What do you think God felt when the man and the woman were told, don't you touch that? It had been the easiest thing in the world for him to just go and start over. He had all the power to do it. But the legacy of the book is that God came and he called, come. See this animal die. He dies in your stead. There will be a rise out of the seed. And in that, the plan of Jesus. But it's the whole way through this book. Why did he call Jacob out of Egypt, Israel? Well, the story of how and why and what for is all there. And, and you have these big stories and you have these little stories that are there. There's that line of Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Cornelius and Philemon. And they are all Gentiles from the old covenant to the new that are being brought into the people of God. It's the workings of an almighty God with his people. And it's in your storybook. And it's one of the things you pull from it. The third thing that the Bible storybook is for our good is that it teaches us the right way to go. Do you know that there's a right and a wrong way to worship and who to worship? Look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you will know where it's okay to bow down to an idol and where it's not. You just watch how they did. You ever cast a lot for a preacher? What does the Bible command you to do that? You read the story and you watch how they did it and you copy them. And your storybook is full of that kind of instruction. And um, it's just some preliminary thoughts as we go into one of the Bible stories. You're going to look for those threads in there. And then number four, that purpose of the Bible storybook is to demonstrate the infallible law of sowing and reaping. How did the story of Samson go? What he sowed is what he reaped. How did the story of Hezekiah go? You save your life and lose your children. Manasseh was quite the rotter. How did the story of Lot and Sodom go? Well, you can get the good land and you can get the good life, but you lose your wife. It's right there in the story. You can see it. The law of sowing and reaping. 
is right there on display in the Bible stories. And um, I think it's just important that as we read the stories of the Bible, we just have a framework of some of those things in our mind, because otherwise, it's just another book. And you just end up, well, that was a nice story. I'm glad I read that one. But it's way more than that. Now, this Bible story that I read to you from Luke chapter 13 is a story of one of Jesus' miracles. Here you have a woman, and she has this infirmity. And, and, and the, the transition from Greek to Old English to our English, you have to guess at some things because it, it doesn't all... What is the infirmity? Well, I don't know. It, it, is it a fused... Some so a spinal issue that something has grown together, or there are spurs on her spine, but she's hunched over and she's she's bent over, and Jesus sees her and he calls her to him, he speaks to her, he touches her, and she stands up straight, and she's healed, and everybody's just bug-eyed because you don't normally see that when you go to church, you don't see crooked people stand up straight, and they knew that somebody special was in their midst because they saw the woman straighten up. And uh, it was God's power on display. It was so simple and so easy. And yet it was almost um, maddening to this ruler of the synagogue because he didn't think that should happen in his synagogue. They should do that on the other six days. I don't understand this logic, but he did. Um, and Jesus said, well, your logic is, you watered your horse this morning. And she, this is the daughter of Abraham, and now she walks. And uh, it's, it's the story. It's a miracle. A miracle. What's a miracle? Well, a miracle is um, it's an extraordinary event manifested in everyday human affairs. It's when the unthinkable or the unsuspected takes place in front of your eyes, and when it's all over, you say, that it's a miracle. That, that, that doesn't normally happen that way. About 10 years ago, our, uh, the youth were, went hiking, and they hiked back to the Trough Creek Falls, and um, when they got back there, a couple of the boys decided they're going to run up around and go to the top. And uh, my son was the first one to the top. And he walked over to the edge, and he thought he'd better just be safe and hang on to something. And he leaned out, and the tree that he was holding snapped in his hand. And he fell about 65 feet straight down over the falls, right in front of all the young people. And uh, he hit the rock wall about three times going down. And about 15 feet off the bottom, there was a rock ledge about three feet wide and had an incline on it. And his body bounced off of that, and it threw him out into the middle of the little creek. And there was a pool about five feet of water, and he splashed in there. And um, they thought he was probably dead. And the boys dove into the pool to dig him out, and he came up on his own. He said, I'm fine, but his eyes were rolling around. And, um, the biggest injury he had is there was a, a tree had fallen down and his leg hit that as he hit the water and he had a, a welt on his leg about like that and his clothes were all torn but he had fell 65 feet down a rock wall and he actually walked out of there and I said that's a miracle that's a miracle that, that's not how it works that's not how it goes but I want to say something about miracles tonight because there's a catch-22 in miracles that not everybody thinks about. Um, miracles aren't fair. Did you ever know that? How many of you wish that life, sh or think that life ought to be fair? 
you've thought that thought at least once. It ain't fair. It should be fair. Well, go ahead and have it your way. You won't have any miracles in it. See? Because miracles are when the laws are broken. It's, it's when you, you knock this water cup off and somehow it goes over to the edge and it teeters and it goes over center, but it comes back. And there's a lot of miracles. In that way, forgiveness becomes a miracle. When you say, I, I won't demand justice, I'll let it go. And Jesus would do these miracles. They were not random, but they were always planned, I'm pretty sure. They were not a surprise to him. I think they were slated or scheduled. With what he could do in knowing what was ahead, it seems like he selected that synagogue that morning because he knew she would be there. Okay, I'm, I'm really sticking my neck out. I'm letting my mind wander. Maybe that's dangerous. But when I think about how Jesus was supernaturally aware of what was coming and what was ahead of him, it seems to me that out of the dozens of synagogues, he picked that one that Sabbath day. Why did Jesus do miracles? Well, he did them because he could. But he didn't do them for status. He didn't do them to draw attention to himself. Matter of fact, he would do miracles, and he would tell people, now you don't tell anybody what happened. He told the leper that in Matthew 8, 4. He told the deaf and dumb man that in Mark 7. He told the blind man that in Mark chapter 8. And he told Jairus' daughter and her parents that in Luke 8, 56. Now go and don't tell anybody. It, my fame is going the wrong direction. I, it's just, just, just... Let's not even talk about it. I, I did you a favor. I did, but let's, that's now we're done. He actually was disturbed when people would come asking for a sign. Mark 8, 11, and 12 says that he sighed. The Pharisees were asking for a sign again. They wanted something supernatural. They wanted a miracle. And, and that's not really why he came. Jesus and miracles is was a strange I was going to call it attention, but maybe that's the wrong word. But uh, dichotomy, that's, uh, that's probably the wrong word, too. Um, but he would do miracles. It says in John 2 that he would do miracles, and then people would believe in him, but he wouldn't trust them. John 2.25 says, because he knew the heart of man. And uh, he knew that somebody that is wowed by a miracle is not pulled to something substantial. And that's actually how it works. You know, there's a whole generation today that wants God to do miracles, but they are not substantiated by the miracles if they happen. You watch that and see how that all plays out. You see, Jesus did miracles because he wanted to demonstrate, he needed to demonstrate that he was the Son of God. He was a sent man. He came to do the work of God, the will of God. I must be about my Father's business, Luke 2.49. He had the anointing. I am anointed, Luke 4.18 to preach and to teach. And in John 9, 4, he said, I must work the works of him that sent me. But you see, he was not sent to do miracles. Rather, miracles were done to demonstrate that he was sent. Okay, It's just a slight shift of wording, but it's true. He was not sent to go on a campaign, but while he was here, he would do miracles to demonstrate. And you have that in John 20, verses 30 and 31. He wants to demonstrate that he was from God and he had the power of God. And the fascinating thing was that when he would do a miracle, you see it happen in this story, that at the end, everybody was brought to a crossroads. The woman, 
the ruler of the synagogue and everybody else. It's making a decision for Christ. Is he for real or isn't he? Is he from God or isn't he? Does he have the power of God upon him? Is he truly the one we look for? And the search for the Messiah was completed for some as they saw him demonstrate the handiwork of God in miracles. Now, there's something I want to point out, and then we'll actually look at this in finer detail for the remainder of the message. And that is that one of the things that happen in the miracles of God, in the miracles of Jesus here on earth, is he demonstrates the gospel way for you and I of how it works. I don't know if you ever caught that before, but once I saw that, the Bible, came, the Gospels came alive in a new meaning because there are strategic and particular ingredients of every miracle story that you can find if you look for them. And they are the repeat of the pattern that man must take if he will come to Jesus in this hour. Okay? And um, you say, well, why did he do a miracle? One of the things, conclusions I've come to in life is that no matter how intelligent you might be or you might think the human race is, one of the things that I am convinced of is that as humans, we are hopelessly pragmatic. That's a borrowed phrase I got from a book, but it's true. We are hopelessly pragmatic. What that means is that it's almost impossible for us to really grasp truth in the spiritual realm without having it demonstrated to us in a temporal way. I don't know if you ever thought about that. But this is why the miracles follow the pattern they do. When, when the gospel call will go out in the Holy Spirit age, new covenant, what you're going to see is a repeat of what happened here in Luke 13. And, and what I'm, I'm sure, I think that's why we have ordinances in our church. We wash each other's feet so that we have a clue how to be each other's slaves. We break the bread at the table so that we can actually grasp the broken body of Christ. Does baptism wash away sins? Peter says no. But when you watch a man or a woman kneel and the water is poured and, and, and the cleansing, and you say, oh, I see. Let's just look at this story and see the gospel right here in verses 11 to 17, and the gospel way is laid out. So the first thing I want to point out is that you have a story, and Jesus is there. Now, one of the things that's dramatically different between the world I live in and the world that's here is that when Jesus was there, he wasn't anywhere else. But today, particularly with the work of the Holy Spirit, he is here. But he's at my house, too, with my wife and family. But Jesus is there, and, and that's where we need to start with all the gospel stories. The, the gospel happens when Jesus is there. And he's in this synagogue, and he is, um, I guess he was teaching. Verse 10 says he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and then you have that little hash mark indicating that there's a shift. But I believe it's the same it's all the same event. And uh, Jesus is there. He's the healer. He's the mighty one. He's the savior. He's the redeemer. He's the lamb of God. And he is here. And that is the beginning of every story of a come to Jesus moment. 
the Holy Spirit works in a way that he didn't there today, but that's okay. We can leave that alone for now. Ever since Calvary, Jesus is here, and we look for him. We expect him. I don't think a single one of you came here tonight thinking that this was going to be a social lecture. You, you anticipated a spiritual moment, and there is nothing like a spiritual moment without the presence of Christ, all right? And Jesus was here. So Jesus is there, and Jesus is, is well, it says in verse 12 that he saw her. This is where the Christ who is present is looking. The Son of Man, Luke 19.10, it is some classic golden word. Today, this is after Zacchaeus' story. Today is salvation. Come to this house. For as much he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so Jesus is there, and the woman is there, and Jesus is looking, looking for someone. Um, I think his eye was peeled for somebody to heal. It seems like he was in that state of preparation and, and, he, and he would find people. He would go down the road in John 4 and he would sit down at a well and a woman would come up and he'd start talking to her about, I could sure use a drink out of that well. And, and then she's getting him a drink. Well, I, actually, I, can I tell you about some water you never heard of? But if I give it to you, you'll never thirst again. And just like that, the Christ has found a lamb and he's, and he's, he's come to seek and to save. It's what he did in the villages and towns across Galilee and Judea. It's what he did on the Sermon on the Mount where he, he went up on the hill and they all came to him and he just started teaching. And we have some of the most practical, righteous teaching that the world has ever seen. And it's in our gospel. And it's because Jesus was seeking for someone. He was doing it when he confronted the Pharisees and when he hung on the cross. He would call out, to the other, he would call out salvation to the other thief who wanted it. He was still seeking even as he was dying. And this is the Christ who seeks. And he's here. And he's there. And he sees her. And he calls her to him and says unto her, Today you are loosed from your uh, infirmity. Now, number two, not only is Jesus present when a soul is saved and a miracle is done, it says there was a woman in verse 11. Sort of sounds random. Sort of sounds like, Oh, by the way, sort of sounds like you may not have seen this before, but the truth of our state is that it could say there was a woman, there was a man, there was a Dwayne, there was a Joe, there was a Billy, there was a, and now start putting the Filipino names and start putting the Japanese names and start putting the Ukrainian names in and the Jeks and the, there was a woman. There she is. The need is great. It's been going on for a long time, 18 years. Nothing has changed. Nobody can change it. She wishes she could be changed. She's entirely open to change. But nothing is happening. And there was a woman. This is not just a woman. It's a type of all humanity. North, South, and Central America, Asia, Europe, Africa, India, Gather any group together and you'll find that the woman is there. That's life. That's where we live. That's where we go to be missionaries. Gather them together and they'll be there. The woman that has this lump, this hump, 
I don't know what it is. It's a long-standing problem. It's 18 years long. How long is 18 years? 2005. That was not very long ago. (laughs) Got a brand new pickup that year, I believe. That thing's in the junkyard by now. 18 years is a long time when your back is crooked. This, this woman, it says that she could not uh, in no wise lift up herself. She couldn't look at comets. She couldn't look at the stars. She couldn't, she couldn't even shop the top shelf of Walmart because she's all bent over. And, and Jesus sees this. She has a problem that impacts her entire life, her whole world. You ask her if she ever saw an eagle soar, she said, not in the last 18 years. And it's a huge problem, and she finds no answer. But suddenly she is where backs get straightened, and she is there where the problem can be fixed. And this, is, this, this story is a type of the sinner who has this, this, this life-defining problem, this guilt, this... You can't, you can't get a fix for it. And it's, it's a hard life, and it's a long life, and it's a lonely life, and it's a bewildering life, and it's a troubling life. Just like having a kind of a lump on your back or a bend over, fused back, and you just can't function. Rocking chairs would be a pain. But it says in verse 12 that Jesus saw her. Isn't that precious? Jesus saw her, and he, it registers with him. Of course it does. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is what I came for. This is what I'm looking for. It, it, it's, like a, it's like a garage sailor that finds what they actually went out to get. But it's much more precious than that. And Jesus sees her. Jesus came to her, and then she came to Jesus. He deserves credit for the meeting, but there's no surprise. He said, he would say in John, if no, Matthew. I didn't look this reference. It's the one where he says, and if I, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. You just have that attraction. All of a sudden, she's there, he's there. She sees him. He sees her. And it says in verse 12 that when Jesus saw her, he called her to him. This is a genuine call. There's no hypocrisy. There's no games being played. He's not doing it for status or ostentation. He's just calling her. He sees her. He wants to help her. And he calls her to him. This is not politics. This is not where you kiss babies in front of cameras to get votes. This is where you you have a heart for what you're looking at. And because you can fix it, because I can fix this, I will call her to me, and she will never be the same again. And that's what happened to her. It's the come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I'll take care of the lump on your back. And Jesus calls her to him. He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. John 6, 37. Revelation 3, 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man will open, I will come in, and we will sup together. And you you just have that coming together, his interest and her interest, and and he calls her, and she comes to him. The woman comes there in verse 
12, he called unto her and said, woman, you're loosed, and he laid his hands on her. And so they came together because all of a sudden she was right there in front of him and he could touch her. But I want you to understand this, and you can find this in, in most. I'll say most because I feel like I've, I've never quite researched 100% of the miracles of Christ to make sure that it is always there, but all the times I looked it was. And that is in every story, if you watch there will be that faith moment for the person. Go and show yourself to the priest. Take up your bed and walk. And he stood up and walked. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Do you believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. And this is so true of the coming to Jesus that can happen on all of our lives yet today, and that is he will come, we will come, he will call us, and we will come to him. But right in there lies the rub, will you or won't you? You see, all this story needed for it to go down into the ditch would be for a woman to say, oh, just let me alone. Don't, don't even talk to me. Nobody likes me. I just, I, no, just get away from me. Why is he talking to me? Oh, I wish he'd let me alone. People do that. People do that, and it's to their own hurt. If they would just come when he calls, then he could touch them. And that's what he did for her. He laid his hands on her. She came within his reach. She had to. That was her faith. And it's true of us today yet that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in thy heart, Jesus can only do so much for those who he calls. If you've ever read the, uh, the singer of the song in the finale, in the story of Jesus, there it's an allegory about Jesus and the church and the future events, and I don't follow all of them. My mind's not that big. But I love that story about the singer, and it's an allegory. But he has one case where the, he meets a man who is a miller, and he has gotten his hand in the gears of the mill and just mangled them terribly. And he meets this man, and he tells the man, I can heal your hand. And the man says, nobody can heal my hand. Don't mock me like that. Ah, oh, but the singer says, I can. Come here. I am not coming. And the man does not. And, and in the allegory, that man becomes one of the false witnesses at Jesus' trial. And he lashes out against him. He said, the man could have pitied me, but he would not. And at that point, the singer says, nay, I could not have pitied you. You had pitied yourself enough. But do you understand that there are people that never get the miracle of Christ because they are too stubborn, too proud, too something to take that final step and get where he can touch them and say, go ahead, Lord touch. And the back gets straightened. The woman was healed in verse 13. Not partially, but wholly. She stood upright immediately. She was made straight and glorified God. I don't understand why the man that, um, that with the blind man was touched and he said, do you see anything? Why see men as trees walking? Oh, well, now go ahead. I think it's a miracle that the guy could identify things even though he had never seen. I see men as trees. Well, that is quite some healing. How would you know what men or trees look like if you never saw before? But he did. Well, Jesus, when he did these miracles, he would heal completely. 
And it was true here. And it is true of the gospel story as well. Invitation, do you like formulas? Invitation plus faith equals touch. Touch equals complete healing. That's, I just made math out of the gospel. I probably shouldn't do that, but I do like math. Invitation plus faith equals touch, and touch equals whole healing. Do you know something? There was nothing greater that could have happened in that woman's world that day than that a man would touch her back and straighten her out. There was nobody that could come and visit her. There was no blog that she could do. There was no likes on Facebook that she could get. She couldn't go shopping. And I don't know, what are all the things that people do for just for the fun of it? Do you understand that meeting Jesus that day and getting her back straightened by her touch because of her faith was the most incredible and it's the best thing that could have happened to her that day. And that tells us again, teaches us a simple point about the importance of the salvation of the soul. And that is, if Jesus has never touched me, then the best thing in life has not yet taken place. That's the way it works. It says that the people rejoiced. You know, the Bible says in Luke chapter 15 that the angels rejoice when one sinner's repent. When when I got saved, my parents rejoiced, and my grandparents rejoiced, my school teacher rejoiced. It wasn't the end of the story, as my school teacher found out. But it was something that brought joy to the community that Jesus did a miracle one more time. It's still that way today. But there's also one more point that is made in this miracle story that stands true today. And that is that as everybody looked on, everybody had to decide what they were going to do with Jesus. There were people that were not touched that day that signed on. All the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done with him. And there were people of faith that never had this kind of miracle done to them. They simply took the step of faith because they were in the presence of the healer and they watched it happen. And they too signed on. Now there were adversaries that were ashamed. And that's just how it is. Day follows day and month follows month and year and decade and century follows century. And all the time the world is still trying to figure out what they personally want to do with this miracle of Christ. They see it in other people's lives. They hear about it. They read the testimonies. Have you ever read a testimony and said, ah, I wonder if that was for real? So have I. But that's what happens. You see, this, this thing of, of the miracles that Jesus does to demonstrate that he is the Son of God and this miracle that he does for you and I, for anybody, American, Bangladeshi, Indian, Central American, Canadian, in the palace, in, this, in the ghetto, every man's the same. And Jesus does this work, and as his work is going on, people see it, and they have to decide what they're going to do. I mentioned in passing my, my travels to Bangladesh and the church that is being built over there. I don't understand much of the language. When I go, it's a physical hardship. I don't enjoy the food. The jet lag rips me kind of figuratively to pieces. And um, it's just not that much fun until I get to start to listening to the people. 
and you sit in this little bedroom and there's 10 people there and they're having a little council meeting and they're telling about how they came to Jesus and the difference that it makes. And then this man says, well, my wife first believed on Jesus and I was a drunkard and I watched her and I couldn't understand why she went from being a shrewish old woman to just this sweet personality that was suddenly nice to me and wanted to pray for me and wanted to sing for me. And finally, I couldn't stand it any longer. And I said, what is wrong with you? And she said, nothing is wrong with me. I have Jesus and everything is right. And then I wanted Jesus too. And this is how the story goes. You watch, you see, and the question comes back. And so, Dwayne, what are you going to do? And the question goes out, what are you going to do? And it's what happened in this story. And the story is simply a story that gives history. It's a story that shows how God works with people. It's a story that shows us how we ought to do. It's just another one of those Bible stories, but it's also a story that demonstrates how the gospel works. Tonight, I'm just going to give an invitation. Is there anybody here that has a crooked back? Or you've been watching Jesus work in people's lives, and you'd like what they have. You can find healing tonight, just like this woman found healing on a Sabbath morning. I'm going to sing a few verses of invitation. If there's anyone here that, that doesn't know the power, the touch, the glorious touch of Jesus and what he can do for your life, I'd just like to invite you, stand to your feet. We'll help you to find that touch before you go to bed yet tonight. What shall we sing? Church Journals, 560.